This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Good day, flamethrowers. I don't know what time you're listening to this, so good day good whatever time of the day it is for you. I don't know when or where you're listening to this, but I am glad that you are. I am Amir Rose Davis, Assistant Professor of History and African American Studies at Penn State University. And this week, I am joined by my magnificent co-hosts, Lindsay Gibbs, my fellow Gemini. It's our season. Woo! Wow, I have have none of your enthusiasm (laughs) for that. (laughs) Well, I'll have it for the both of us. Lindsay is a freelance sports reporter and the creator of the incredible Power Plays newsletter. If you haven't yet signed up, please go do that now, powerplays.news. She is based in Washington, D.C. Good morning, Linz. Morning. Jessica Luther, who is a Swiss army knife of excellence. She bakes, she lifts weights, she's getting her PhD, occasionally makes cameos in music videos. And of course, she's the author of the forthcoming, much anticipated book, Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back. She's based in Austin, Texas. Hey, Jess. Hey. And last but not least, Dr. Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor at Hofstra University, my fellow historian, academic big sis. She's brilliant and funny, and most importantly, she is done grading. Cue the bad bunny. It's time to turn up. Brenda, how are you doing? I am so much better than usual. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Shireen is not with us this week as she's celebrating Eid. And let me please take this moment to wish all of you who celebrate a hearty Eid Mubarak from all of us here at Burn It All Down. This week, we're going to celebrate AAPI Heritage Month by highlighting some stories of Asian American and Pacific Islanders in sport. I've asked each of my co-hosts to highlight somebody uh, retired, current, uh, and share their story. So we're going to start from the top with uh, that celebratory segment. And then we're going to also have a segment where we talk about sports still, still somehow trying to come back. And we'll kind of bring you the latest at where certain leagues are, who's doing it well, who's continuing to fail miserably. Plus, we have a very special interview. Jessica talks with Kate Elston, one of the co-hosts of the period-focused podcast Vicious Cycle, about sports and, well, periods. They chat about some of the things Kate learned in doing what they call bleed search for the podcast, why the stigma around periods refuse to die, and the consequences of that in sport. Plus, we even get Kate singing about all of this. That's right, songs about sports and periods. I am here for it. And then we will all talk about sports trying to come back still in a pandemic, still. Um, And of course, we'll be burning some things. We'll shout out some badass folks and we'll tell you what's good in our lives. But before we get started, if you weren't already fatigued from the 10 hours that ESPN spent on Michael Jordan, and side note, if you want our full feelings on this, check out our special Patreon episode on The Last Dance. And if you're not a Patreon, 
subscribe. $2 a month gets you access to 45 minutes of us ranting about this documentary. But yeah, so if you weren't already fatigued from that, ESPN announced a forthcoming nine-hour documentary on one Tampa Brady. Listen, I'm one of the few people who would actually enjoy watching the game footage, at least, and I don't even want this. Um, On Twitter, many folks were offering their suggestions about who they would much rather see. So quick hitter, roundtable, guys, give me names. Who would you rather spend if you had to spend another, you know, 10 hours on anybody in sports? Who would you rather see? Jess? That's, I mean, that's a tall order, just in general. But my short list... Simone Biles, Diana Taurasi, and this is such a fair girl thing to say, but Andy Murray. That's the <laughs> list. <laughs> I love it. Lindsay, how about you? Literally anyone that's not selling Protect Immunity Blend supplements would be good. Mm-hmm, um, that part. <laughs> <laughs> anyone who's uh, not doing that during a pandemic, I would choose right now. But I mean, honestly, like for me, I'm dying for someone to do justice to the Gabby Douglas story. And that's just what I keep saying. Gabby Douglas, Gabby Douglas, Gabby Douglas. Because as much as greatness fascinates me, also people who struggled with you know, not being the greatest after being the greatest. That stru- that fascinates me even more. So yeah, I want Gabby Douglas. Yeah, that'd be great. Brenda? Almost anyone but Michael Jordan and Tom Brady. Um, <laughs> I generally hate these things because they're just hagiography. There's no way you're getting a real story and it's, I'm so uncomfortable with it. But I guess Sissy, Marta, um, Socrates, I guess I'm like well in Brazil today. I would, shocking, shocking. Yeah, I, I thought we were gonna go. I thought we were gonna get a Formiga. A Formiga in there. I mean, I would love a cohort documentary. Really, mm. like, like one that took that generation and and sort of brought it up to what is today probably the twilight of Marta. And so that would be my ideal. Is like not one individual, but Formiga, Marta, Sissy, oh, the trifecta. Yeah. No, I'm I'm with you. I'm first of all fatigued. Like, just don't know if I could do it at all. But like, I mean, if you made a, a documentary about like the referee down the street who is mowing the grass at the field that my kids occasionally play soccer on, I would probably watch that more than whatever <laughs> they, they would do. So ESPN, folks, see, we just took 60 seconds, generated a lot of ideas, get your research team on it, put your research behind it, or, you know, better yet, somebody just give Burn It All Down a production company. Hi, yay, yay. All right, let's get into the show. So May is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month in the United States, and we wanted to celebrate that by bringing you a segment about AAPI athletes. I think this is particularly important in this time when we're seeing the rise of violence and racism tied to the coronavirus against um, Asian Americans and Asian people in general. And I think that if you haven't already read uh, UCLA basketball player Natalie Cho's essay on this, also Caitlin Ohashi and NFL player Taylor Rapp um, and other Asian athletes. Um, are speaking out about this issue. There's a great article on the undefeated about their efforts. I really do encourage you guys to check it out. And so I definitely want to make note of that. But for today, however, I've asked each of my co-hosts to highlight an athlete, current or retired, of AAPI descent. And I cannot wait to learn about some of these stories. So let's start semi-chronologically and historically, I guess. So Brenda, what you got for us? Yeah, I was looking into this and honestly, there was so many to choose from and it was difficult to pick, but I picked Vicky Manalo Draves. 
who medaled in both platform and springboard driving in the 1948 Olympics. And so she's the first person to win gold in both of those, or first woman, sorry, to win gold in both of those. Also national diving championship, 1946, 1947, 1948. And so obviously this is huge in the 1940s, just coming off of World War II and the terrible treatment that Asian Americans experienced. Um, during the internments in World War II, she is a child of an interracial marriage. And almost right away, her coaches make her drop her name Manalo, which is her father's Filipino name, and take her mother, whose last name was Taylor, and use that instead. In an interview with NBC a few years back, her son said, quote, when she was young, her mother would say to her and her two sisters, you guys look down at the ground. Don't look up. End of quote. And then every time she used the public pool, they drained the water after. And her son said, quote, this really hurt my mom. She would actually go to a pool and compete. And after she got done with the meet, they would always empty the water out of the pool. End of quote. So it's just incredible to me. I can't imagine what it takes to continue for that many years and experiencing that type of racism on on a daily basis and so connected to the very space that you're in and the shame that they tried to throw on her. After the Olympics, she and her husband, she eventually marries her coach, she and her husband open a diving school and um, she's inducted to the International Swimming Hall of Fame in 1969. Lindsay? Yeah, this is um, a little more recent, of course. But, you know, when I think of, you know, Asian American athletes, Mariah Nagasu really comes to mind. I think one of my favorite sports moments of the last decade is seeing her land that triple axel in the Winter Olympics (laughs) in the team US team competition in what year is that 2018, (laughs) I think. (laughs) So yeah, I think that the reason her story is always so compelling to me is because of all of the you know ups and downs that she's been through. She made it to the onto the U.S. Olympic team for the 2010 Olympics and finished fourth. She was only like 19 at the time, I believe. And um, then four years later, she finished third at the Olympic qualifying but was kept off the team, even though three were allowed to make the team, there's a selection process. And she was left off the team so that Ashley Wagner, who had not performed well at U.S. Nationals, could be put on it. And I think, you know, for so long, she was in the shadow of the Ashley Wagner and Gracie Gold and the American media's desperation to have a white, blonde, figure skating, figure skating superstar. And I think that Mariah often got, didn't get the attention that she deserved and, you know, was literally left off the team that she deserved to be on back in 2014. But she didn't give up. She kept fighting and she made the team in 2018 which was like I said she ended up going in and at the in the team competition she helped team USA to the gold medal when she landed a triple axel um 
in her free skate, um, becoming the first American female figure skater to land a triple axle at the Olympics and the third woman from any country to do so. Another part of her story is that both of her parents are Japanese immigrants and they own a sushi store in a sushi restaurant in uh, California. And it's very much like she grew up, it's a, you know, it's a store we hear from a lot of immigrants. She grew up at that store. Her dad never takes vacation except to see her at the Olympics. And he jokes, but not really a joke. He says, like, I've had to take two vacations because you made the Olympics twice. So I had to go, you know, kind of blames her for that. And she's actually been doing a lot of work over the past month. And I will we'll put a link in the show notes. And I encourage you to go to her Instagram and read how you can help her family's restaurant because she's been working really hard to save her family's restaurant during this uh, COVID-19 pandemic. I'll go next. And I wanted to make sure to center and, and talk about Pacific Islanders within this conversation, because sometimes the PI part of the API gets gets left out. And so when I think about Polynesian athletes, a, a lot of times my my first thought goes to somebody we've discussed on the show before, which to Duke Kahana uh, Moku, who was a surfer. And I think about Duke, who was born under the monarchy, under the kingdom, before the the U.S. overthrow of the monarchy in Hawaii. And then he went on to have this like storied Olympic career and represent, you know, five-time Olympia. Like he's so decorated, but like had to claw tooth and nail for every inch. In 1911, for instance, he smattered, uh, smashed all these swimming records. He bested the 100-yard freestyle record by more than four seconds, which is in swimming, a huge. He broke the record in, in the 200 and equaled it in the 50, but the AAU refused to recognize this. They said the the judges were using clocks and not stomwatches or that the Hawaiian ocean currents aided him and that it was saltier, like all of the excuses possible. And it wasn't until many years later that they recognized him. And of course, he he popularized the sport of surfing. And so if you want to revisit those conversations we've had on episode 71, um, Shireen has a great interview about the colonization of surfing with Bonnie Sue. And I think that that is, you know, where my first mind went. And then I think a lot about, of course, football players. Um, but I wanted to to actually talk about the rise of softball around, among Polynesian women. And all too often what's lost in that is the experiences of Polynesian women in sport. And one of the really interesting growths of the game of softball over the last few years has been with athletes of color. In particular, we've seen Asian American softball players increased their numbers by 27%, Latinas by over 55%. And then the other really significant number is that Polynesian Hawaii Islanders have increased their numbers in softball, in college softball, Division One softball by 43%. And that's a huge growth of the game. There was an article a few years ago that talked about um, in the Women's College World Series because there was like seven Polynesian girls split between the teams left and they had formed 
formed a kind of community, despite the fact they played for different teams. There was this kind of long form article that's, that's really good about their bond. They call it the unofficial ninth team at the College World Series. Um, that was a, a kind of grouping of all of these different Polynesian women. And so that's, that's kind of the, the focus that I wanted to do. And so I wanted to give you a name to kind of be on the watch for. And that is Deja Mulipola, who was on the 2020 ro- softball roster, had a standout career at Arizona. And unfortunately, of course, you know, the Olympics are canceled or postponed or whatever the hell they're doing with it. But um, yeah, I just wanted to shout out that name. Uh, she's someone to watch. And so it's not necessarily a specific story, but like a general kind of rise of softball as a sport for Polynesian women who are really kind of gaining ground there. And I think we should keep our eye on it. Jessica. Yeah. So I totally piggybacking off of Amira introducing Duke. He's one of the main reasons he lobbied very hard to get surfing into the Olympics, which we were supposed to see this summer. And we will actually see whenever they actually hold the Olympics, possibly next year. Uh, Shout out to Carissa Moore, who um, qualified for the US. She is a native Hawaiian. So she feels very much in the legacy of Duke. But I wanted to focus on a surfer named Kanoa Igarashi. He grew up in Huntington Beach, California. Uh, His parents moved there from Japan when his mother was pregnant. And I don't know if this is like, you know, we tell the stories later, but uh, I read that both of his parents were surfing fans. So when they were picking, they picked, quote, Surf City USA as the place that they wanted to raise their kid. So that's why they moved to Huntington Beach. Uh, He qualified for the championship tour in 2015 at the age of 18. He was then the youngest rookie on the tour in 2016. And then in 2019, he won his first championship tour victory at the Corona Bali Protected Meet. He's currently sixth in the world in, in the World Surf League's rankings. He, because his parents are both Japanese, he has dual citizenship and he has chosen that to surf for Japan next year. And I was reading one, the World Surf League site says that he's possibly the biggest chance for gold for Japan at the Olympic Games, which is really exciting. His dad used to surf at Shirashita in Chiba, Japan, which is the site of the surfing. And there's this story I read about how back in the day, his dad used to use a machete to hack through the the overgrowth to get to the beach to surf there. And that it's really wild for him to think of that his son will be surfing there for Japan. Kanoa has said about the Olympics, quote, the Olympics is my family's only opportunity to watch me compete live. My grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, they watch me surf every event online. And for them to see me surf in person for the first time representing Japan makes it that much more special for them. And then I just wanted to read this quote. He has talked specifically about being both American and Japanese and what that means to him and how um, that affects him. And so he told a site called magicseaweed.com, quote, That's one of the insights I have as a Japanese-American athlete. Americans are more competitive and are driven to take down their competitor as they see someone's success as an attack on their own. Japanese are happier to see one of their own do well because it's an island and the population is smaller. Success feels shared. It's good for me having both. So I'm excited next year finally to see surfing in the Olympics. And I think uh, watching Kanoa try to go for the gold for Japan will be really fun. Up next, Jess's interview with Kate Elston from Vicious Cycles. Hello, flamethrowers. Jessica here. I'm joined today by Kate Elston. Kate is a journalist, producer, and editor. She was the lead producer on the political comedy show Newsbroke. She's a longtime improv performer with The Ballroom and sketch comedy writer, director, instructor with Killing My Lobster. She's also the co-host, along with Meg Hayes and Meg Trowbridge, of the podcast Vicious Cycle, which is all about periods, menstruation, and cycles. Thanks for being here, Kate. 
Hey, thanks for having me. So let's talk first just general terms about Vicious Cycle. Tell us what this show is about. How do you describe it? Yeah, we say it's a podcast about periods and the people who get them, like plain and simple. Meg, Meg and I are three best friends and comedians in San Francisco. And we were talking one day just about how like we don't, we talk a lot about our periods to each other, but not to other people. And we actually don't know that much about our bodies. We're 30 somethings who are like, not quite sure even what ovulation really means. So we thought it was time to demystify, bitch about and laugh at our periods. Half of the world goes through this. And when you talk about it, you make it less shameful. So there are times when I've edited myself in the (laughs) post-production a little bit more, but for the most part, I have no shame. Like we're all going through this. We all have questions and we all have weird things going on with our uteruses. And I love the name, Vicious Cycle. How did you pick that? We were just brainstorming for a while. And I think Meg Trowbridge came up with that one. We had a bunch, we had like, you know, because we wanted to be funny, we were trying to think of like, you know, it should it be this American period or <laughs> there will be blood on the rag was one we really wanted to do. But someone had okay. that one. Someone had oh, on wow. the rag, but it wasn't a podcast about periods. So we were just like, that's unacceptable. But yeah, Vicious Cycle worked out in the end. Yeah. And it's, it just fits so perfectly. And so I, are there specific episodes, like if someone is brand new mm. to the podcast that they should listen to, like, do you just start with episode one or are there I ones mean, that you think people should start with? That's a good question. So yeah, I think starting with episode one, we kind of all get into it together. You know, a lot of this podcast is just us discovering things with the audience. Like one of the hosts will do research and present it to the other two. So it's like, let's go on this journey together. So in that realm, I love our episodes where one of us just does a lot of research. And my favorite one of those, one of my favorites is do animals get periods, which I did research and presented. And there was a funny, dumb song at the end of it. We make up a lot of parody songs. So like that one happened to be ripe for a song at the end. Yeah. And then we have a lot of interviews with like fellow bleeders, friends of ours and semi-famous people people that come with their sort of menstrual woes or menstrual tales. So like a friend of ours came on the podcast to talk about endometriosis or bleeding while trans or having an eating disorder and how that affected her period. So yeah, just like a lot of like fun topics and not so fun topics, but we try to make it fun all the time. So let's turn to sports since that's what we do here at Burn It All Down. Are you yourself an athlete? Like what is your relationship to sports? I was big. I was really athletic as a kid. I was a big athlete as a kid. And I still am active today. I, you know, ride my bike like everywhere in San Francisco and do that. Like, yeah, a lot. But I'm, I was nowhere ever near semi-professional or professional or anything. But I did, I played soccer, lacrosse. I ran. I was, I was a big, like just recreational swimmer. And so like doing this podcast, like just in general, it's made me obviously reflect on what my periods were like as a kid. And I somehow down the line realized, wow, I don't really remember them being that problematic in all those years I played sports. You know, there would be times when I'd be playing like three soccer games a week. I don't remember my period ever getting in the way, even though I wore white shorts in a lot of my teams. So, and and even today, I don't really suffer when I like ride my bike. I don't feel like it ever holds me back. So Since we started this podcast, I started realizing like, wow, every menstruator is so different. So there must be people out there that have really different stories and experiences than mine when it comes to being 
athletic and having a period. Yeah, yeah. So at the end of last year, you did what you all call on Vicious Cycle a bleed search. You yep. were so nice not to use that pun so far. So I got to um, <laughs> give it to our audience for the first time. To, yeah, it's listen, it's not a good one. We do a lot of puns. <laughs> That's not our best, but it is what it is. <laughs> but So a bleed search about athletes and periods for a series of episodes. Why did you decide, and you were the one leading that, you yes. were the one who did the research. So why did you decide to focus on that specifically? Well, that so 2019, the US Women's World Cup was on. I'm a huge fan of the women's national team. I have been since I was 12 years old, watching the 1999 team win, like highlight of my life. I I was watching it at home. I wasn't actually there, but it was still a big deal. But yeah, so when they won, this news came out that Rose Lavelle, who scored the second goal in the final against Netherlands, she... um, along with all her teammates had been being were being tracked their menstrual cycles were being tracked by their coaches and Le- Rose Lavelle got her period the day after the world cup and they knew that was going to happen because they'd been tracking her and even though you know it's assumed that you know maybe the day before your period you're maybe sluggish or a little you know your energy might be lower they optimized this data to like you know, pump their athletes full of like nutrition and good, you know, tips on how to exercise and how to be in different parts of your cycle. So it sort of optimized Rose and the rest of her teammates to like perform at their best. So when I read that article, I was like, okay, there is so much we don't know about that I personally don't know about how periods affect athletes. So let's look into it. And it turns out that no one knows how periods affect athletes it's because people that bleed aren't in positions of power to research things in a lot of cases. So, so yeah, looking into this was like really interesting because like women and men are so different biologically and so much of women's sports research up until now has just been like applying what we know about men to women. And it's just so not the case. Like our menstrual cycles really make us fluctuate in our performance. Like I'm a huge soccer fan. I watch a lot of men's women's soccer. And the men, when they score a goal, a lot of times they'll take off their shirt and it looks like they're wearing sports bras, but they're actually tracking devices that track their GPS, how far they've run, like their dehydration or their hydration levels. Like it tracks everything. So of course it would make sense that women have that and they, and they do, but it's just like men's for the women's national team, menstruation has become like an extra data point for them. Yeah, which I think is so fascinating. Like one of the things I appreciate about the way that you presented it, which I think is just a reflection of how the team uses it is that it's just another data point, right? Like there's so many things that were that people are constantly monitoring elite athletes for. And this just happens to be another one. It makes so much sense yet. Like we just talked about, it's so rarely done. And I told you before that I was trying to prep like some like genius question about this and I don't really have one, but like, what do you think I mean, what is it going to take for us to get there? Like, is the answer just someone's going to solve sexism and then suddenly periods won't be taboo anymore and we'll we'll add it in? Like, when do you, like, how do we get there? Well, one, I think talking about it. So like podcasts of comedian friends, but also like obviously news media and athletes and coaches talking about it, making it something that you can bring up to your maybe male coach. You know, I think we, we had a lot of listeners call in or or write us when we asked questions about this and saying like, Oh, I grew up, you know, I had a a male coach my whole basketball career and I could never tell him I was cramping. Or even if coaches are 
you know, understanding, they still, it might not register, be on their radar, you know? So they might not think to, you know, that if a girl steps off the volleyball court, it might be that she's actually, you know, going through some menstrual pain. It's not that she's like not playing well because she's a bad athlete or whatever. And the other cool thing about all this that I read and that um, we learned from our interview with Amy Rodriguez, who used to be on the national women's national team is that the, the cool, the, the U S team has made their period data, like strategy, like known to other women's teams around the world, their competitors and also other, like other sports, like they want the world to know about this, right. They want other teams to adopt this strategy, which just says a lot about, I think women being like the better gender <laughs> that they want to share, but also, and, yeah. and, and the women's national soccer team has done this also in like how they um, like their contracts for their team. Like other countries have adapted, have adopted what the U S women's team did when it comes to maternity leave and collective bargaining. So it's like, there's this sort of like sisterhood among professional athletes. It's like, here's what we did. And here's what we know. Please take our examples, take our research and apply it to your team too. Yeah, yeah, so, all these yeah. under all these under-resourced people trying to pool their resources. <laughs> Give us another couple things that you found surprising or interesting that you learned when you were doing your belief search. So much interesting stuff. So this one I always have a hard time explaining because again, I'm still trying to understand how our cycles work. But okay, so the first half of our cycle, a menstrual cycle, we're pumped with estrogen. Um and estrogen research suggests that estrogen can increase joint flexibility, which results in more damage to like our knees. And research also suggests that ACL knee injuries are more prevalent in female athletes than men. So there's a British soccer player named Jordan Nobbs, who's like their star player. She couldn't go to the World Cup last year because she twisted her knee the day of her period. And she's she thinks that it has to do with a lot of estrogen in her body. And she's like really frustrated that like, no one really knows the answer. And she says she has a lot of teammates and, and, and friends that have also twisted their knees in like the day of their period or like the second day. So researchers, again, we don't know for sure, but there's reason to think that like, if you're, if you're an athlete to, for the first half of your cycle to maybe loosen up on the like start and stop uh, exercises, because that could, anything that could like put pressure on your joints, you should maybe not do so much. Wow. We need and, science on this. I That's know. fascinating. And, I'm sure, and, I, and I bet you that this is the stuff that the US team coaches and trainers know. And I'm sure this is the kind of thing that they're like, okay, if it's the first day of your period, you don't have to run lines, you know, maybe that's what's going on. But then the second half of your cycle, we're pumped with progesterone and progesterone can alter the body's ability to handle heat, which means that you might get more fatigued and feel hotter during prolonged exercise in that time of your cycle. So long distance runners are told to maybe lay off like going hard the second half of your cycle because you might not perform as well. And there is a long distance runner, I think from England, who took this to heart and like knew that on the first day of her period, she'd, she'd not have as much progesterone as she did estrogen. And she won like the Chicago Marathon or the New York Marathon that day. It was the first day of her period and she won it. And she attributes that to knowing that anyway, yes, it's just the progesterone estrogen, like divvy up, it, it affects different athletes, different ways. And like trying to optimize that to perform the best. 
So that was something really interesting that I learned. That and again, we always reiterate on our podcast that none of us are doctors. <laughs> so like, please consult your personal trainer. But that was just something that was so interesting because one Meg Trowbridge, one of the other hosts, she mm-hmm. says her knees often hurt the first half of her cycle. And she never thought of it that way. So she's like, oh my God, my knees do hurt the first oh, half of my so cycle funny. more than my second half. Yeah. The, the listeners to this podcast will know that I go to the gym and I lift weights a lot and I have terrible cramps on like day two and three. And I always tell my blessed trainer who I love to death, whenever I go and I do squats on the day two of my period, I'm like, I want you to mark on my chart, <laughs> like that I should get yeah. extra points today. Yeah, <laughs> it's totally. like, it's a miracle that this it's is happening truly, right now. It's a miracle that I feel like we can even do what we do with the shit that, sorry, I don't know if you guys allow swearing. On the we podcast, absolutely allow swearing. With, <laughs> with the shit that goes down during our cycle, like we deserve all the medals and yet we're still not told that we're like, we deserve equal pay. So like, whatever. That's amazing. Yeah. Okay. Well, I want to let listeners know that if you want to hear more about periods and sports, then you definitely need to check out episodes 46 and 47 of Vicious Cycle. And then on episode 48, like you said, you all interviewed U.S. Women's National Team player, World Cup winner, mom, current NWSLer with the Utah Royals, Amy Rodriguez. And that's a great interview. And I think episode 48, everyone should go check that out. And then I, I also wanted to point out that episode 77 of Burn It All Down, which was back in October 2018, I interviewed WNBA and Team USA. Laisha Clarendon and we talked about periods and she actually sponsors Diva Cup so she talked a lot about that so Kate tell us where on the internet can our listeners find Vicious Cycle yeah wherever you get your podcasts Spotify Stitcher Apple Podcasts Google Play and also on Instagram we're at Vicious Cycle Podcast the Megs handle the the content on that feed and it's really really awesome nice and where can they find you um there. That's the there. there. Yeah. I don't I mean I have a personal website, but I need to like touch it up. So like yeah, I'll do that later. But yeah, just find me. You can also find us on viciouscyclepodcast.com and from there you can learn more about the hosts. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on. And we are going to now do a little treat for our listeners, which is at the end of your bleed search episodes, you sing a song that you wrote <laughs> to I'm Tiger. And you're very graciously going to share that with us now. And it is so great. So thank you, Kate, for joining me on Burn It All Down. Thank you so much for having me, Jessica. Also our moms give
Before you bleed, you're receptive to heat. Our bodies fill up with progesterone. <laughs> then bleeding starts, estrogen fucks our knees. And again, this research could be wrong. It's the eye of the cycle, you're an irrational bitch. Rising up, cause you all are fucking fighters. You bike, jump, ski, and skate, and bleed without recognition. You All right, y'all, we're in week a million of the pandemic and against (laughs) lots of people's judgment, many states are starting to open up and sports are trying to come back still. They've been trying and they're trying new ideas, some better than others. (laughs) So here we are. Here we are. So I want to start. We've talked a lot on the show. We've covered what seems like for months now, the terrible, terrible ideas, um, cough, Dana White cough, that people have had to keep sports open and restart them, etc. I wanted to know, is there any sport that you think is actually well positioned to come back or is maybe, you know, making better choices um, that you actually see being possible? Jess? Yeah, it's a good question. And I, I mean, I'm going to answer you in the affirmative, but I do just feel generally like, no, (laughs) everyone stop. But I am really interested in tennis, of course, that's, you know, my favorites, and I've been looking for it. And the US Tennis Association is, you know, about to host later this summer, the US Open, Wimbledon, French Open, they've been canceled, or I guess the French Open is technically postponed, but uh, (laughs) we'll see. Uh, Okay. But so the US Open, it's something like 80% of the revenue for the USTA. So they are trying desperately to figure out what they're going to do. I don't I think maybe we mentioned it on here that the Billie Jean King Center was being used at some point to help with um the COVID relief, like they were sending patients there or something like that. So who knows about the, like the physical space of it. They, according to the New York times, uh, they're talking about maybe using or, or moving it to Orlando where the USTA has a hundred court training facility or to the site of Indian Wells near Palm Springs, California. You know, tennis is kind of like a little bubble when it shows up at a grand slam. I mean, it's still a huge bubble and there are like a lot of people involved. So that part of it, I just don't understand the logistics of, but as far as the playing itself, tennis makes a lot more sense to me than say football or basketball because there is distance on the court. And so you're not like up in someone's face and, you know, spitting on them. (laughs) So it makes sense to me that they could play in a way that is safer. Again, the logistics of bubble things, I don't totally get. The other part of it that I wonder about with tennis is that it is international. And so you're going to get people flying in from all over the place. And will people want to do that? Like, would you want to come to America right now if you were concerned about COVID? I don't I don't know. Uh, and then are players from who knows where the COVID hotspots will be a few months from now, but will players even be allowed to come? What will these things look like um, as far as the field of players 
that are able to participate. I don't know. It just, it still seems like a logistical nightmare to me, but as far as, you know, actually playing the sport, I can, I can see it. We've also talked a lot about the disproportionate kind of effect that COVID is having on women's sports. So when we think about these kind of returns um, and, and, you know, building off what Jess was saying, Lindsay, what are the updates that women's sports leagues, where, where are they at in terms of coming back? Yeah, so I want to start with the LPGA, which is going through a lot right now. We've got women's golf is being kind of completely left out of this string of charity events that golfers are having in order to raise money. And women, I wrote about this for power plays, you know, golfers who bring up this fact are basically being bullied off of social media. And it's just been really uh, gut wrenching to watch. But Beyond that, so you have the PGA Tour for the men and the LPGA for the women, and the PGA is actually on track to come back starting June 11th, whereas the LPGA, it's probably going to be towards the end of July, if that, before they can come back. And I found that to be very interesting because there's been a lot of talk. I have written about her power plays, about how, you know, um, it would be great if women's sports could come back sooner than men's sports. And also, logistically, a lot of women's sports uh, have it easier than some men's sports. But the LPGA is actually the opposite. So the LPGA, they are a much more global tour than the PGA. About 30, I talked to them this week, and they said about 35% of their athletes and caddies are outside of the United States. So before they get anything started, they have to, you know, have everyone fully quarantined and everything. And another big thing is the LPGA tours business really relies a lot on the in-person experience. So their personal interactions with fans and sponsors, you know, the pro-am tournaments, um, all of these things. If you talk to anyone who's been to an LPGA event, which I was planning to go to this year, and I hope I will still be able to at some point, but it's all about the athletes being really accessible. And it's all about just this kind of personal thing. So they don't get as much of their money from these television contracts as the men's tour. So it's a lot harder for them to return in a landscape where no fans are allowed. So they're still hoping that they can figure out a way to do this where there's some direct fan engagement. So that's going to be really interesting. Another thing is the PGA Tour is using chartered flights and things like that. The LPGA doesn't have access to those. You know, it's all commercial <laughs> flights or driving. And so that's a big thing. And it's it's tough because these players on the LPGA, they, they, they're not on contracts. If they don't compete, they don't have a chance to earn any prize money. And most of these players are barely kind of staying afloat anyways. Another thing that makes me sad is this is the LPGA's 70th year. So, you know, this was supposed to be a big celebratory year, but hopefully towards August, there will be opportunities for the tour to come back in some way. Um, but it's, I think that sport is really interesting. You really see the difference between how the men are able to handle this versus the women. You've also got the WNBA, which, you know, if I don't know if anyone's noticed that their NBA updates about 50 times a day and the WNBA updates are maybe once a week. And that's been kind of really frustrating. And honestly, a lot of that's because a lot of what the WNBA does depends on what the NBA does. They are once again kind of being left in the shadows and left as 
an afterthought as these organizations prepare. I'm sure they will benefit from a lot of the testing stuff that the NBA is working on, from a lot of the protocol stuff the NBA is working on. I'm sure there will be benefits to that. Um, but goodness, do I wish that energy was putting was being put just towards a women's sport. That would be really exciting. Uh, Commissioner Kathy Engelbert has said that there are about half a dozen scenarios for the league to begin play this summer. Possibilities of looking at one site and you know, most or maybe, you know, just a few home arenas. They're not really going into specifics. Disney World has said, which is where it looks likely that the men will play the NBA. They have said they'd be interested in hosting the WNBA as well. So that could be a possibility. One benefit that the WNBA has is that they had, you know, scheduled a month off for the Olympics this summer. Um, So the whole calendar, there's a whole month that they can use that they were supposed to break that obviously they won't need to use anymore. So they're hopeful that they can use that time and still get in a full season. But it's unlikely that there will be any fans in the stands. And then you've got the National Women's Soccer League, which is looking at this June 27th as a start date for this tournament in Utah. <laughs> and it's like going to be like a, a round, ro- a group stage, and then a knockout round and quarterfinals, semifinals, and championships. So the last two teams standing will have played a total of seven matches, and every team will have played a minimum of four. It's This would kind of be, it seems like, Instead of the season, this is what they would do is this month long tournament in Utah. But as Meg Linehan reported the athletic, there are a lot of details still to be figured out. And there are a lot of players, it seems like, especially national team players who are not excited about this idea, do not really want to take the risk. And I think it, there's there's still a lot to figure out to, to make this happen. And we've got to see the good news is that the league appears ready to provide charter flights for teams and single rooms for players in Utah, because, of course, it would just be that one flight. So that makes it easier. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, this is call me a little bit skeptical about this idea. Oh, it also involves playing on turf, AstroTurf, which of course is not good for the body. So yeah, it's kind of all a mess. And I and I want to pitch it to you, Bren. We saw Bundesliga return. It was a little weird. The NWSL is talking about, you know, round robin in Utah. What What is the state of global soccer, global football in this time? It's like, uh, it's, it's bonkers, put it scientifically. It's all over the map. Uh, Bundesliga came back and, and there's really no coordinated effort. I'm surprised to see that FIFA, which usually loves regulating the shit out of soccer, hasn't done anything to come back with some, you know, kind of global protocols and measurements. But, you know, that would probably not be best for anyone either. So what you have is, and just the NWSL and the AstroTurf, and by the way, that's the end of June. It's like 120 degrees on the AstroTurf. Oh, my God. Bundesliga came back, and uh, honestly, the only reason it came back is the German healthcare system is national, and it works, and it functions. And I don't even know that it's great in one particular match. Well, all of them that I'm watching, the players are, are instinctively, after a goal is scored, going to hug each other. 
And you can hear the announcer be like, let go of one another, boys. Let go of one another, boys. Like, release, release. And, and it's like this hysterical, like, don't hug. And you see the players kind of midway hug, be like, ah! And um, and they're they're smashing elbows, which just is like I would watch this on loop. Oh, you should, <laughs> you should. So I mean, they're 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 like no, 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 boys. Like, and then they sort of like knock elbows instead of high fiving, and it all seems like random. We know it's risky, and yet they're still out there doing it, and so it's really hard to to say. The frustrating thing is, of course, they've canceled and we had our Badass Women of the Week last week was um, Barcelona. They have canceled the Spanish Women's League, but then announced today that June 7th, uh, they're back. June 3rd, the Primera Liga in Portugal is back. EPL is trying to come back, but has canceled all the women's leagues. So we're seeing exactly what we thought, except out of Germany, where um, the Frauen are back May, like the very end of May, they have they have the green light. Uh, it, I think it's still not scheduled yet, but that's there. So it's pretty frustrating. I don't think women should play just because men are playing. If those women don't feel safe, if those leagues decide that that's a, a bad decision, then fine. But if the reason they're not playing is because the male-run federation has just decided they don't care, th- which is what I suspect, then it, it's become a very frustrating pattern that we're seeing across the board. Yeah, and wasn't there some solution about fans that a league had? Can you tell us about that? <laughs> There's been a lot of different ones. The Bundesliga allowed people to buy a cardboard replica of themselves, um, which I thought <laughs> was, which I thought was like, wow, Germans know how to make bank, right? <laughs> um, everybody wanted a cardboard replica of themselves for I don't know, it was like 17 euros or something like that. And then the most egregious and sexist example, and just icky, was South Korean Federation deciding to put sex dolls in the stand so all female could you call sex dolls women i, I is that like because there's like a surplus of them <laughs> <laughs> or is it just like that's the blow-up dolls they could find like that's the blow-up figures that they could find i feel like that's got to be it like motivating players I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I just don't have the answer. And getting into the minds of men who run global football is always frightening. And so that was the worst thing, I think, that I saw as far as an idea goes. Jess, do you have thoughts on fans? Yeah, I haven't yet watched. So Brenda, I know, has watched the Bundesliga. but doesn't have the fans in the stands, but I haven't actually watched anything that's doing that yet but i think it'll be really strange uh not to have the crowd noise i think we're all just used to it in a way that it will feel very weird at first i think most people will probably be able to roll with it just so they can watch i don't know what it will mean economically of course for all of these teams and leagues and stuff i do wonder what it will mean for the players themselves i find that really fascinating i'm thinking about what the crowd can do to lift up players, you know, at the end of a tight match or they hit a major shot and it's giving them momentum. And part of what's happening is the crowd is screaming along with them uh, to push them forward. I think about 
what the crowd does in tennis, uh, how much it can mean to an individual player who's out there dealing with all the sort of psychological stuff that they that they deal with as players on the court. So I I mean, I think it'll be weird. I think people will be able to manage it as fans themselves. But I, I am interested in what it will mean for players. <laughs> yeah, Lynn. Uh, no, I lied. Brenda. It was interesting. I was in a in an event for with uh, Fair um, and Fief Pro with Anita Asante, who plays for Chelsea. And this question came up to her, and she was asked, "Well, you know, as a player, how are you going to perform without fans? How would you? Even though they're, like I said, the the Super League, Champion League, what whatever you call the British version, Super League has been canceled." And she said, "That is." like not an issue women are used to being devalued and playing in front of very few fans very often and she's like Mm. we do it for each other we do it for the the like dedicated diehard fans that will show up even if it's not you know a national team match or something like that we are used to motivating ourselves and putting in like excellence on the pitch regardless so I thought that was just a really interesting interjection she made there yeah it is I think, Lindsay, you have a note of one sport who actually has been successful in coming back. Yeah, NASCAR has actually pulled it off. And I think it's funny because it's it's really a sport that's made for something like exactly. this. Because, I mean, not only are the logistics of like, oh, haha, they're in their cars or whatever. Because, I mean, they do, you know, they're, they're pit crews and things like that. So there is close proximity. But for me, the reason it's really made for it is because they already do so much of their traveling in trailers, right? Like they and, – and they can live in these trailers, right? Like they're already this kind of like insular – community and who, you know, packs up and drives their own cars, you know, with all of these buses and all these transport things to, you know, from city to city. And also, it's the same group of people week in and week out, right? Like, it's basically... You know, one of the reasons I liked covering NASCAR, which was when I I did it for a couple of years, was because it's really easy to get to know the the people and the characters because it's literally about the same 40 drivers every single week on a weekend, week out basis. So there's not that many extra people coming into their bubble. You know, it's not a lot of in and out, which is, I think, another reason why it's a sport that is kind of made for it. And I think it it is weird to see them, you know, with no no fans in the crowd. But I have. a lot less confederate flags sorry can it yeah a lot a lot, lot less confederate flags but you see you do see though i think like the cars themselves like create so much energy right and the loudness of the cars so it's not a quiet sport which i think really helps watching it on tv because i mean think about a lot of the noise you're usually hearing when you're watching sports is the crowd noise <laughs> but in nascar that's not the case so i think that helps the viewership experience and also you still got like players being mad and flicking each other off and crashing each other. And so that's still exciting no matter what. Are we setting ourselves up? Is the kind of fever pitch to get sports back because we're thinking of sports as we once knew them, setting us up for disappointment when they return looking very different? Jess? Yeah, I'm wondering about what this will look like after months of not having access to trainers and gyms and practicing as teams, especially like what will the quality of this be? I know we're talking about, especially for pros, a lot of elite athletes who have been doing this for decades and maybe they can just like switch it back on. But I do sort of wonder 
what the level of play will be and how much COVID and all of this distancing will actually have on that. And I don't have any sense of, I don't know how to get a sense of that at this point. Now it's time for our favorite segment. Yep, it's time to burn some things. Lindsay? Yeah, I'm going to be quick this week. I want to burn The Athletic and their, the select few people there who are convinced to continue to say that basketball equals men's basketball, uh, not women's basketball. So they earlier this week released a list of the top 25 greatest college basketball teams of all time. And the the list was all men's teams. A lot of people on Twitter said, well, why don't you just specify that this is a list of men's teams? But they refused to do so. (laughs) There was a lot of defensiveness, a lot of, well, this is what we write about anyways. So this is just how it is. And um, they did later in the week do a women's list, which was great. But I just want to it just want to burn in general the damage it does to women's sports and to just people's psyches to refuse to specify men's sports and women's sports to refuse to to continue to use men's sports as the default and women's sports as the other. It is so it it sounds like such a little deal, but the reason it's a big deal is because it's just four characters. And when you're not even putting four characters in that will just acknowledge that something other than men's sports exist, you're continuing the marginalization of women's sports. There are a lot of great people at The Athletic. I work for The Athletic. And I don't want to, of course, bash everyone that works there. But as an editorial team, they need this is something that they need to put in their style guide that men's sports will be referred to as men's sports in all their entities. So then we have space to recognize women's sports as well. And of course, it's not just The Athletic, although they were the, the culprits this week, but I just want to, I want to burn. Men's sports are not the default. Burn. 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 I'll go next real quick. There's news this week of a lawsuit um, filed by two men. One is an unnamed NFL player. They are suing United Airlines for failing to act on um, a sexual assault and harassment that took place on a flight. The lawsuit um, alleges that In a February flight from L.A. to New Jersey, a woman on the plane started harassing this NFL player about the face mask, the safety mask. The flight staff finally took action and removed her to a different seat. After complaints, part of the issue is that when they asked United to rectify the situation, to protect them as passengers, and to do something, the airline refused to give her the name or anything that would have assisted them in filing a complaint against her and instead offered them $150 in airline vouchers. And that's it. So my burn is actually a trifold. One, obviously, this is not okay, first and foremost. It's harassment to pull off a face mask in the middle of a pandemic and certainly fucking harassment to grab somebody's penis. So like, don't do that. I also want to burn the two two reactions I've seen to this. One is expected in in awful, which is this kind of like, how is that harassment? Like, 
I would like that. That's trash. And that's one of the things that prevents men who are assaulted. It, it creates a stigma and it prevents them from, for seeking out help and for, um, kind of raising, raising the specter of that issue. And the second reaction is people saying, Oh, stop the double standards. Because if this had happened to a woman, he would have been arrested and this would have happened and yada, yada. And, but the people putting forth this double standard argument are doing it to say, that you shouldn't treat men like that when women are assaulted. And it's like, that's the wrong direction. Like you, you, you had, you started to talk about a good point about the double standards and you just went left. Like the, the standard should not be so we don't care about sexual assault. The standards should be that we care about sexual assault no matter who's perpetrating it and who's the victim of it. And we should empower survivors. And this is not okay all the way around. And lastly, a $150 voucher is absolutely <laughs> not sufficient for it's any so type of, laughing. for being groped on a plane. Like just, at the end of the day, if you're groped on a plane, like a $150 voucher does not fucking erase that. So burn it down. Burn. burn. All right. Bren, what do you got for us? So there's an ongoing case that Shireen burned originally last uh, week that I want to follow up on, which is the Federation president of Haiti's soccer federation, Yves Jambart who has been under investigation. He has headed the Federation for 20 years. Both Human Rights Watch and The Guardian and other women's rights organizations in Haiti. And I really want to delve deeper into that because there's a lot of grassroots action within Haiti among women's organizations to work on this case. He is accused of sexual harassment, sexual assault, and forcing players to get abortions after impregnating them. They are underage. They were dorming and residents in the um, soccer complex that actually received like $500,000 just initially to rebuild by FIFA after um, hurricanes in Haiti. And basically, I want to burn the fact that FIFA has not suspended him and his close associates The women and their families have said that they are getting death threats following this. He is a very powerful person. It is very difficult right now in the current political climate in Haiti to get protection, no matter what crime you're reporting, much less this one. He's he's incredibly powerful, and they are not. And FIFA needs to suspend him until they can complete this investigation because otherwise these girls and women and their families are left completely unprotected. And they're launching the Haitian Federation, an entire smear campaign against the the people reporting. It's not even clear who they are and they're trying to out them. And so it's all the kind of retribution that we see happen when someone reports this kind of case. So I want to burn the fact that Uh, So much of it, all of it, of course, but in particular, what would be very easy to do, which is for FIFA to suspend him immediately and until further notice, until that investigation is complete so that he has just one less resource with which to wield against his victims. So I want to burn that. Burn. All right, Jess, take us home. Bryant-Denny Stadium is where the University of Alabama's football team plays in front of more than 100,000 people in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, a town with a population of just over 100,000 people. Yes, the stadium can hold roughly the size of the town in which it's housed. Only 38,000 students actually attend the school. It's the 10th largest football stadium in the country. The latest addition 
is going to cost $107 million. That's a lot of dollars. And it's mainly they're remaking a large portion of the luxury seating. They're adding a tunnel from the Walk of Champions directly into the Crimson Tide locker room. I don't know what any of that means. And to and they're replacing the four video boards in the corners of the stadium. $107 million. They're in the middle of this construction right now. According to the uh, to Inside Higher Ed, since the last recession in 2008 and up through 2017, tuition at public four-year colleges in Alabama rose more than 60%, 60%. Late last year, the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities reported that Alabama has cut per-student funding at state colleges and universities more than any other state in the U.S. So that's one thing about the stadium renovation that makes me want to grind my teeth. It would annoy me even if it weren't in the middle of this public health crisis and massive unemployment. Perhaps I could stomach it, though, if I imagine that there are people who have jobs right now building this unnecessary cathedral to a game that exploits the labor of students. But as I just mentioned, we are in a public health crisis, and it turns out going to work on a construction site with an infectious virus going around isn't always the best idea. This week, AL.com reported that the construction site is now a coronavirus cluster. After more than 10 people have tested positive for COVID-19, the site reported that the number could actually be much higher than that because, quote, the large number of positive tests means essentially everyone at the job site could have been exposed. According to the reporting, the construction was briefly paused over the weekend to deep clean, but work resumed last week. I'm feeling some way about universities trying to justify bringing back football players when they aren't even sure if campuses will be safe places for faculty, staff, and all other students. But they can't even keep their construction crews safe. Crews which, in theory, already are used to a lot of safety instructions and have a boss who can tell them to wear things like masks or wash their hands or keep away from each other. It seems, though, that the point is not really the health and safety of anyone or anything except the college football season. If that can be salvaged, who cares about anything else? And so, good news on that front, the stadium is on track to be ready for Alabama's first home game in mid-September. Ridiculous. Burn. Burn. Jesus. After all that burning, it's time to shout out some badass women of the week. Honorable mentions. Cheers and many thanks once again to the athletes on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic. This week, we want to shout out U.S. rugby player Tess Fury, who's a pediatric intensive care nurse in Morristown, New Jersey, at the medical center there. And Dallas Wings Astu Nudu, who's donating essential bags of rice, sugar, and oil to families in Senegal through her foundation. Also, shout out to Chelsea Spencer, a former national champion with the University of California's Berkeley softball team. She will now be the team's head coach. Also, Megan Rapino, Sharon Thorne, who's the chair of the uh, Doolittle Global Board of Directors, and former Afghanistan women's captain and activist and former guest of Burn It All Down, check out episode 43, uh, Kalita Popal, were three women included on a list from the France, from France football who have been named as, quote, the most powerful influencers in world football. Congrats to the three of you. And can I get a drum roll, please? <laughs> Our Badass Woman of the Week is Vanderbilt's Candice Lee. She has been named the official athletic director after serving as the interim director for the last few months. It makes her the SEC's first female black athletic 
athletic director. We have a huge place in our Burn It All Down hearts for Candace Lee, and we could not be more ecstatic for this historic appointment in this position. The chancellor of, of Vandy said of Candace, she's perfectly positioned to lead our athletics programs to new heights of success on and off the field of play. And she's the living embodiment of our values and aspirations. She's just the fifth female athletic director among Power 5 schools. I could not be more thrilled for our friend of the show, Candace Lee. Congratulations. You are our badass woman of the week. All right. What's good in your worlds? What's good in your worlds? Brenda. End of the semester. End of the semester. End of the semester. <laughs> it was sad. It was um, poignant. I am sorry to not get to put on my academic regalia gear and get out there and meet some parents and say goodbye to my wonderful students. But it is time for us to move on. It was a difficult semester. Hats off to all of those professors and students and teachers and parents that got through it. To those of you who want to argue about your grades, go somewhere else. And so that's really good in my world. Woo! Lindsay, what's good with you? Okay, this is a little old. I know I'm a little late to this, <laughs> but I've been watching those videos that parents have been putting out, the Temptation Challenge oh, I videos. Love them. <laughs> Where they put out like the candy. Why have you not done one with Zachary? I know we need to because we know he's just going to eat it. He's going to eat it so fast. <laughs> but if you guys haven't seen this, like parents put out candy for their kids, their young young kids, and say you can't eat any till I get back, and then they video what happens in the meantime. It is so simple and so funny, and it has brought me a lot of joy. And so that's that's literally what's good. <laughs> It's a good thing that came from the internet. It's the best thing that's come from the internet um, in a very long time. I love that. It's very pure. (laughs) You have to see the one with uh, Gabrielle Union and Louise's daughter. Because, you know, she gives no fucks at all. And she's like, she just goes. (laughs) It's hilarious. Um, Just what's good with you. The best thing is like the kids who, even the ones who do it right are funny because like they talk to themselves. Do you know what I mean? And they're like, they like smell them. And they're just like looking around. Whose whose kid was it? Who's like have patience, have patience, have patience? (laughs) That's like one of the first ones I watched. She's like patience, patience. The first one I saw, which is still my favorite, is the somebody had tweeted it with the caption: "He will not be like he he will never be like caught by the CIA or whatever because he like is edging over and reaches in and right as he puts it to his mouth, he sees the camera." And he like drops it right away and backs off. And it was like a hidden camera. And it's it's perfect. It's perfect. They're like, never be caught slipping. <laughs> so good. Jess, what's good with you? So I stayed up late last night, which means I was up until like 1 a.m., which is really late <laughs> yeah. for me. It's adorable. Uh, because Aaron and I were finishing The Great on Hulu. It's in theory about Catherine the Great. Don't go there for any history. It's like basically <laughs> all incorrect. But I really enjoyed it. It is bloody um so just prepare for that but Elle Fanning plays Catherine and Nick Holt plays her husband Peter the third they are spectacular and it's so weird it's written by the same guy that wrote the favorite so if you've seen that it's weird in the same way that the favorite is weird and so I can definitely see people who won't 
like it. Uh, we loved it. And so we finished that last night. And then, of course, things that are good in my world are always baking, especially right now. I did make my lemon ra- lemon macaroons. Uh, I think I mentioned that last week. They didn't turn out quite as good, uh, but they taste amazing. And I did get the feet on them. So a macaroon, like, it's the meringue. And when it's in the oven, it sets up and it gets what they call feet on the bottom. And I had the feet and that's a big deal. And then right now, as we are recording in my oven, I am proofing lemon rolls. My friend Lindsay Schnell sent me this recipe from the New York Times and it's like cinnamon rolls, except you replace all of the spices and stuff with lemon flavoring. So the in the inside is lemon zest and sugar. The cream cheese frosting has lemon in it and the dough has lemon zest in it as well. And I'm just a huge lemon fan. So I'm going to go eat that after this and I'm very excited. That's great. I'm still waiting on my double cheat cookies too. You just reminded me. <laughs> I was like, all this baking. Where are my cookies? Yeah, it's Gemini season. Hey, yeah. Ooh. Um, I'm trying my best to be positive. It's a very weird Gemini season because we're we're not people who are meant to be not out sharing our light with the world during our season so it's difficult i it also snuck up on me my birthday is next week i don't even know what that means like nothing um really but um i'm still trying to have an air of positivity around it um really i've just been obsessed with my peloton i don't know what else to tell you there's like a weird espn peloton thing that i don't quite understand but what i do know is the women's side of this like weird special is stacked like allison felix is riding and i'm like really into that so that is my and like azarenka it's random i'm trying to tell you it's random but I'm I'm getting uh, a lot of joy out of the. It's like a. I don't. I'm not clear actually what any of it means. <laughs> like it's very confusing. It's like a special, and it's unclear if they're doing it like so that everybody can ride, like they did the last dance ride or whatever. But they have like a men's division and a women's division. Men's division is like half the like is golfers, a few football players, whatever. But the women's side: is Allison Felix, Don Staley, Kyla Ross. Uh, Monica Pugh, Azarenka, like that. What? I'd watch that. I don't even know what they're doing. Just riding the Peloton. Still tuning in. So that's basically where I'm at (laughs) with that in my life. Shout out to my sister-in-law who turned 23. I remember when she was nine and she didn't have a formal graduation and she didn't get to finish her college track career. But shout out to you, Siobhan Grace. Happy birthday and congratulations. You did it. You're a graduate. And that's what's good in my world. That's it for this week of Burn It All Down. Burn It All Down lives on SoundCloud, but you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, all of them. We always appreciate your reviews and feedback. Subscribe, rate, and please share it around. Let it, let people know who um don't have us in their life yet and, and who might be into it. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod and on Twitter at Burn It Down Pod. You can email us at Burn It All downpod at gmail.com check out our website you'll find previous episodes transcripts a link to our patreon and show notes 
all of the like. Also a link to our Teespring, our merch shop. Right now, you can still use that code STAYHOME20 to get 20% off your order. We're moving seasons. For those of us who are not Jessica and don't live in Texas, we are finally getting some sunshine in our lives. So grab your tanks, your teas, stay home 20 for 20% off your your Biad merch. And so there we have it. <laughs> we wish you again self, safety and health and, and, and all the joy that you can muster during this time. As Brenda says, burn on, not out. And we'll see you next week, flamethrowers.